1: Well, Aki, here we are, the final days of 2016, the year of Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, the year we lost Prince and David Bowie.
2: I mean, I think as journalists, we did such a terrible job predicting what would happen this year. and. Is it even worth trying to think about what might happen next year?
1: Maybe the problem is in these predictions, we're too optimistic. We look for the things that we want to see happen.
2: <laughs> well, how about this? How about we think about the worst possible things that could happen next year and beyond, and we prepare ourselves for the that worst case scenario?
1: That's really grim. I, I like it, though. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Aki Ito. And for our final episode of 2016, we bring you the Bloomberg Pessimist Guide Global Technology Edition for 2017.
2: These are the most dire doomsday scenarios our reporters could come up with. The things that might happen in the world of tech, hopefully not, (laughs) if it all goes terribly wrong.
1: Okay, so buckle in and grab some tums to settle that ominously grumbling stomach.
2: Or maybe that shot of tequila. Yeah,
1: Actually, we should have a bottle of tequila with us now. (laughs) Well, the U.S. is still digesting the shock election of Donald Trump. So let's start with the potential for doom and gloom in Washington, D.C.
2: And bringing us that scenario is Josh Brustein. He's our reporter in New York, and he's on the line with us.
1: Hey, guys. Okay, Josh, so scare the heck out of us. What do you have for 2017?
3: Well, the great thing um, for a pessimist in 2017 in the surveillance realm is that there's plenty to be terrified about whether your main fear is mass surveillance, or whether your main fear is the intelligence agencies of the United States being, um, being hampered in some way or another.
2: That is a perfect pessimist. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay, so there has been this ongoing debate
1: over, over the FISA acts, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. What do you think Trump is likely uh, to, to do with this law?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing is that nobody knows, and that makes people very nervous. This law has been uh, very controversial. A major part of it is going to come up for renewal, and if it's not renewed by the end of the year, it just goes away. And Josh, is that a bad thing, though? It is seen as a very bad thing if you um, are in the intelligence community. If if you're in the ACLU or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, or you're a privacy advocate, then you actually kind of might welcome this. They have a, a website where they're actually counting down to the expiration of uh, Section 702. <laughs> you know, of course, Trump, as a candidate, you know, was, was for forms of torture. I mean, it does
1: suspect that he will push these things to the limit. So, what does what does it mean? Not just for privacy of of Americans, but for you know the U.S. relationship with its allies in Europe and the and the status of. American internet companies abroad.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, if Trump is more aggressive with surveillance, uh, something he could do even aside from this law, because the president has a lot of power, just to start claiming, uh, just start claiming authority under executive orders. And the if he starts being more aggressive, or is suspected of being more aggressive, because it's a possibility that we wouldn't really know what's going on. You could see Europe uh, start to put pressure on American companies. We've already seen a lot of skepticism about whether American companies can protect the information they have against the U.S. government, and that could become a bit of a hot-button issue for European governments and Silicon Valley.
2: Okay, Josh. Well, thanks for bringing that to us today.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: So, how are you feeling so far, Aki? Uh
2: (laughs) (laughs) I really wish we brought that bottle of tequila here. (laughs) Okay, so let's move away from the federal government now and take a look at blue chip tech companies. Alex, you are our Apple reporter, and you're here with us here in San Francisco. Hello. Hi.
1: So Alex, welcome to the Bloomberg Technology Pessimist Guide, where we're doing our best to ruin
4: everyone's day. So tell us, what's the worst thing that could happen to Apple in 2017? So Apple could lose its credit rating, and this has huge implications for a company which has succeeded in keeping shareholders happy by rewarding them with cash in recent years. While they've been waiting for the next blockbuster product to plump up the share price, Tim Cook, the CEO, has sold debt in order to fund buybacks and dividends and keep investors' pockets pl- flush. with.
1: Now uh, what about iPhone sales? Don't they continue to prop up
4: the company? So iPhone sales you know, are still pretty healthy, but they are falling and flattening. Um, so you know, there's been a, the, the first revenue decline in over a decade in the most recent fiscal year. So the expectation is, one hopes, that the iPhone coming next year will be a real blockbuster product. But if for some reason it isn't, and it's vastly disappointing, and it doesn't you know, encourage a huge, new, fresh burst of sales, then that could be a problem for Apple.
2: All right, so we should remember that Apple is the world's biggest technology company, actually, the world's biggest company, period. So, if credit agencies suddenly decide that Apple is no longer creditworthy, that's going to have implications for every other tech company out there, every other publicly traded company in the world.
4: It, it is something that could also you know, have implications for someone like Microsoft. Now, the reason Apple raises this debt is because it, while it has vast amounts of cash in the bank, most of it is offshore. Of the $230 billion in cash reserves that it has, $216 billion of that is outside the U.S. In order to repatriate that money, Apple has to pay a 35% tax rate in the U.S., which is clearly great news for the Treasury, but not such great news for Apple itself. There is hope that in Congress they will pass some legislation which will reduce that tax bill, which increases the like and Apple's willingness to repatriate money from offshore, that would essentially reduce their need to sell debt in order to reward shareholders and come up with that sort of
1: money. Donald Trump has signaled a willingness to do that.
4: Yes, and it's been one of his big campaign pledges that would help spur investment in the U.S. So there is a real appetite to make that happen in the new White House.
1: Is there a chance we might see another miracle product category spring from Cupertino that averts this worst-case scenario?
4: I mean, that's the question every investor in the world is asking. We know they've looked at cars. They've broadly scrapped the actual hardware part of the car project. They're still carrying on with software. We think they're exploring some things in glasses. We've reported that. Maybe something in healthcare. We don't quite know what that is. Maybe just some sort of healthcare platform. They're investigating a lot of avenues, but we're yet to see anything concrete surface just yet.
2: All right, so we just asked you to tell us the worst case scenario, but how
4: likely is it? I was speaking to a Moody's analyst who looks at this stuff as his job, and he said that if Apple continues to raise debt at a faster pace than its cash balance increases, then this could happen within 18 months. One hopes that the blockbuster new iPhone next year renders such a likelihood impossible, but we'll have to look and see.
1: All right, Alex Webb, thank you for contributing to the dark mood in this studio. We appreciate it. Happy Christmas. <laughs> sorry, I should say no, holidays in the US. <laughs> so Aki, who's up next?
2: We are now going from the blue chips to the unicorns. And specifically, we're going to talk about the worst thing that could happen to Uber, which is now the world's biggest private technology company. And we have Eric Newcomer here in San Francisco.
1: Eric. Hey, Eric. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. All right, so scare us. What could possibly happen to our beloved Uber?
5: You know, what, what, if, what if the unicorn with the biggest private valuation in the world, $69 billion, saw its valuation fall? I mean, this is a company that's been built around sort of the ever-growing rise of that that number we've just watched it when it was three billion we thought it was crazy and up and up and up and up you know there are no short sellers against it it's it's a number that's climbed so what happens if it falls so who cares what, what would be the impact of that the problem is one for uber uh morale would be hurt uh some employees would see their stock compensation fall dramatically a lot of them have sort of counted on that as why they're working there and not sort of a, the lush offices of Google, uh, Uber's reputation would fall. You know, it's been this gigantic titan. But I think you know the problems for Uber aside, it would be a bad sign for Silicon Valley. This is a valuation that towers above all other ones. It sort of sets the barometer for what companies should be worth. If Uber's value is misguided, then I think a lot of other companies are going to have to question how much they're worth.
2: And that could have broad implications for you know not just these technology workers, but also the broader San Francisco economy too.
5: Right, maybe housing prices would come down too. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I mean, would a decline in unicorn valuations be good for some people? Presumably, incumbents and everyone that uh, these unicorns have been able to use a flood of cheap money to sort of suppress. I mean, Uber has helped drown out the taxi cab market here. If it turned out Uber was operating at margins that were unsustainable, had to raise its margins, hurt its valuation, uh, lower its market share, that might see we might see a resurgence in taxi cabs. Or maybe Uber sort of steamrolled too many of them to really make a strong comeback.
2: I mean, it really is hard to imagine Uber making money off of these Uber pool routes. I mean, they are so cheap.
5: Yeah, for Uber, it's all about volume drive price to the bottom and then expand into pool, expand into food delivery. So They know the margins are going to be pretty thin, but they just need to do a lot of them.
2: Let me say this, though. As a consumer, I think the worst case scenario for me would be for Lyft to go out of business and for Uber to have a complete monopoly over the San Francisco market and jack up prices like crazy and make my transportation costs spike.
5: I think that's a fair point. Lyft has about a $1 billion in the bank, probably, and is slowly spending down that money at maybe you know about $600 million a year or less. So it has some time to figure it out. But at some point, there's a ticking time bomb for Lyft to figure out how it gets more money, goes public, gets money from those investors, or gets bought and has somebody subsidize their business. Okay.
1: Ticking time bombs. Thanks for unsettling us further, Eric. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Good job. <laughs> Brad, are you ready for the next one? There's more. I feel like I need to go get some anxiety medication (laughs) right now.
2: Well, this one is particularly scary. Lizette Chapman, you are our venture capital reporter here in San Francisco, and you're going to tell us about how personal health data could be collected against our will and used against us. What do you mean could be collected?
6: It is being collected (laughs) right now, and we're volunteering it. Everybody has, not everybody, but like 60 million plus people have absolutely fallen in love with all of these different wearable devices with different sensors on it that track our steps, that you know track our sleeping, and sensors are getting better and better.
1: So what's the problem? I thought all this was supposed to make us feel healthier.
6: It's true. A lot of people have improved their health because they're able to quantify how their habits range day to day and even sometimes compete with their friends the problem is that a lot of people are just volunteering this information They're not even reading you know kind of like the terms and conditions when you download an app you just click it and move on well that could be a problem going forward.
1: But how much data can these insurers or employers really get out of the number of steps we take every day?
6: Well, see, but that's just it. It's not just about steps anymore. I mean, now sensors are becoming so cheap and so much better than they have been in past years that they're able to monitor everything from blood oxygen levels to heart rate
2: to to you name it, it just like you would in a Appointment. So the worst case scenario is these insurers might use this against us that, you know, they'll see the number of steps we're taking, our heart rate, our blood oxygen levels and say, maybe this person uh, has a good chance of getting heart disease down the road. It could happen. We're volunteering this information. I
6: haven't seen any legislation saying, hey. You know, uh, you know, don't reach out to these different customers because it hasn't happened yet. They're not, they haven't made the connection yet between this massive trove of data that's being generated every day by Americans to um, to health insurance policies. Yet, just earlier this year, Aetna. Um, gave out 50,000 Apple Watches to their employees so they can start working on a joint venture with Apple to figure out how to use the data. So I think it might be coming.
1: That sounds scary. Does the potential repeal of the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, does it factor into to this legal ambiguity that might allow insurers or healthcare companies to, to penalize us for our unhealthiness?
6: Perhaps It's kind of meh. You know, you look at that, that's kind of a big, hot, red mess right now. I think the larger point that that you're getting at, I think, is a good one, which is that, you know, health insurance is broken right now, and they're looking for new revenue streams. There's high cost, low satisfaction. Um, With the big data, the use of big data, this is a new revenue stream. And if you think about it, you know, we're just giving it away. It's kind of like when you download an app and you just agree to terms and conditions. Well, thanks for sharing that
2: with us today, Lizette. Brad, I think it's time for you to- uh, I'm taking
1: off my Apple Watch right now.
2: (laughs) At least change your privacy settings on your tracker. Well, I'm going for a run. So this brings us to our very last scenario of 2017. Ready for one more, Brad?
1: Uh, I th- I probably not, but let's do it.
2: <laughs> this one you could say has been long overdue. Here's Dina Bass calling in from Seattle.
1: Hey, Dina. So what what have you got for us?
7: So, my scenario is that in 2017, a group of hackers working for a hostile nation-state or a stateless entity, like a terrorist group, or criminals, or hacktivists, will hack into the industrial systems at um, some critical infrastructure, say a power plant or a dam, uh, public transport. They will tweak the software to uh, in a manner that shuts down or destroys the hardware and damaging the facility.
1: Yeah, this sort of thing has been possible for a while. I'm thinking of that uh, attack by U.S. and Israeli hackers on an Iranian nuclear facility, if few years ago with the Stuxnet virus.
7: Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what they did there. They used a virus to basically speed up the way the centrifuges in the the reactor were spinning and damaged them. Um, And, you know, the U.S. government's been doing some tests uh, going back as far as 2007, if you look at uh, Fred Kaplan's book, where they were trying to see whether a remote programmer in D.C. could take out a 27-ton power generator all the way across the country in Idaho. And, of course, it took just 21 lines of code to, to send the generator to an untimely death.
2: That's incredible. I mean, one of our previous podcast episodes was about how uh, these hackers in Russia managed to penetrate the Democratic National Committee's email servers, and, and they were able to wreak quite a bit of havoc on uh, the election campaign cycle. So, if they were able to hack emails in this way, you, you really it makes you think what happens if they actually hack physical infrastructure. That could put real lives in danger.
7: Sure, absolutely. We've had a couple of you know uh, examples of that around the world. Also, there was a 2013 hacking of, of a dam in Westchester, New York, that was attributed to the Iranians. In 2015, uh, we had was sort of the first reported takedown of an electrical power grid in Ukraine. Uh, and the point you make about the DNC hack is is a good one as well because that that happened with uh, you know as far as we know, not a lot of repercussions. And I you know I. I My sense is that that could embolden people in 2017 to to try something more serious.
1: Well, Dina, considering all these very public instances, how prepared are computer security experts for these kinds of attacks?
7: Gotten, things have gotten better since Stuxnet. Uh, you know, uh, companies like Siemens, which was the, the company that made the controls that were impacted in, in Iran, have worked to harden their systems. They now go in and sign contracts with these companies to go in and update the systems more frequently. But, you know, there's still a, a fair amount of, of issues. And just last week, the, uh, there's a presidential commission on enhancing national cybersecurity, and put, they put out a report. And a number of the recommendations were related to, to these issues of defending uh, key infrastructure. Structure, um, You know, and also they talked about coming up with clear ideas of who does what and, you know, to respond to these kinds of attacks and what are the rules of engagement um, for state and local governments, for the, um, for the federal government, and also for private companies uh, who are, are going to be helping out to protect.
2: And of course, uh, as we bring more and more of our systems uh, connected to the Internet, the stakes are only getting higher.
7: Yeah, absolutely. That was something that was flagged by the Commission as well. And they were talking about, you know, our cyber and physical worlds increasingly converge. You know, earlier this year we saw that massive uh, distributed denial of of service attack that took down a a decent chunk of the internet. And that was basically, you know, people, the internet was attacked via webcams and and DVRs. It's great that we have all of these Internet of Things devices, but they're now on networks that are connecting or can connect in certain ways to our critical infrastructure, um, which is another thing this Presidential Commission brought up. Up. These two things are converging, the largely unsecured world of Internet of Things devices and, and our critical infrastructure.
2: Well, let's keep our fingers crossed.
1: Uh, none of this is making me feel any better. <laughs>
2: Thanks for that prediction, Dina. Thank you.
1: How are you feeling, Aki?
2: Yeah. Uh. I I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for 2017. Maybe we (laughs) need to
1: report the optimist guide to 2017 after this episode.
2: Oh my gosh! I know. What What's your worst case scenario, Brad?
1: Well, I mean, uh, everyone gave gave me a lot of food for thought here. You know, the one that I contributed to the larger Bloomberg pessimist guide was that we would find out that the law enforcement authorities were wiretapping some of these passive listening devices like the Amazon Echo mm-hmm. or even some of our phones that are kind of waiting for these watch words like hello Google or Alexa you know can they just turn those on and listen and if they do do that and are maybe able to you know to to amass some uh, intelligence on some bad guys but what does it do to the overall trust in these devices that are now populating our lives that's my question for 2017 how about you
2: well, how about this? How about I reject the premise altogether? Because I'm feeling terrible right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I give you um, an optimist prediction for next that. year. I'd love that. All right. So I was talking to our biotech reporter, Caroline Chen, earlier. And she was telling me about um, all these really incredible advances that doctors, researchers, uh, biotech companies are making right now in, this, in the field of cancer research. Um, apparently, there's uh, a new method called immunotherapy where instead of using radiation to just kill off entire parts of your body, right? Um, you can go in uh, and implement this really targeted form of therapy that makes your immune system attack the cancerous cells. And so far in uh, university labs and the biotech research labs, uh, they're producing a lot of really good results. Oh,
1: that sounds very promising. Is does, does 2017 the year when it can make a difference in patients' lives?
2: Well, let, let's see. It sounds like um, some therapies are up for FDA approval right now so they, they could become widely available pretty soon and you know maybe they wouldn't cure cancer altogether maybe they wouldn't be able to prevent it but maybe it could make cancer this form of chronic disease that you live with for the rest of your life kind of like uh, kind of like AIDS.
1: So a very nice uh, optimistic prediction to end to end our uh, podcast today. And that's it for this year on The Decrypted Podcast. Thanks for listening.
2: We're going to take a short break for the holidays next week, but we'll be back with a full slate of new episodes starting on January 10th.
1: If you have an iPhone, please subscribe on your native podcast app and leave us a rating and review there. It helps more listeners discover the show.
2: And tell us what you think could be the worst possible thing that could happen in 2017. I'm on Twitter at Aki 7
1: And I'm at Bradstone.
2: This episode was produced by Pied Gidkari, Magnus Henriksen, and Liz Smith.
1: With help from Aaron Plack.
2: Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next year.
1: Happy New Year.